Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. Tonight on the show, Hayden Silas Anadonia, but you're going to know them better as Ethel Kane. Well, how are you? I'm wonderful. I'm having a great day. How are you? I'm I'm good. I, I just flew back from L.A. like four hours ago, so it is what it is. Oh, really? Where do you, where do you live at? I live in Calgary, up in Canada. Okay. Oh, oh, wow. I was just in Canada a couple months ago for the first time. It was beautiful. Where Where did you go? Um, I was in Toronto. I was working with a friend of mine to finish the record. Um, and it was like dead of winter. But, you know, I live in Alabama, so there's no snow. So driving up there, it was like gorgeous and just blanketed in white. What did you think about finishing the record up in Toronto? It was really fun. It was it was interesting, you know, finishing the record down in the south, like working on it the whole time and then like finishing it in like, you know, snowy Canada. It was it was really interesting, but it was um it was really fun. My friend and I, we just kind of like locked in the studio for two weeks and just like eight minutes stroning and worked twelve hours a day and it was great. It was really fun. What did you think of like the vibe of the album coming up in the in the snowy weather? Do you do you think maybe it even works a little bit better? It, honestly, like, it's funny because all the songs in my mind are so summery and they're so, like, swampy and, like, you know, hot. And the one song that I recorded, like, brand new, like, wrote in um, Toronto was Televangelism. It was this little piano interlude at the end of the album. And to me, when I hear that song, all I can think about is, like, snow and, like, winter. And it's funny because, like, that's the one song I made there. That's all I associate it with. Um so yeah, I think it like it actually did kind of have a little bit of a creative impact on the sound of the record. I guess there's something to be said for like cult behavior usually happening in warm weather as well. So I guess that that contributes to why you think a lot of it sounds like it's it, I guess it's more summerish because like a lot of like big cults and stuff like that that shit happens in like the south and always outside yep. big compounds like that were you thinking of that when you were making the album very much so yeah i was like watching um i was like watching a lot of kind of like those culty tv shows over the over the course of working it you know like um like i watched the waco um show on netflix and um, I remember watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and it's always just these, like, dusty, sweaty environments with a bunch of people, like, like walking around with no shoes on, like, you know, it's, um, it's, that's just the South in general, so it, it is very kind of, like, correlated. I don't think I've ever seen a, a cult take place in, like, a snowy area, but, um, but yeah, I've never really thought about that, but that that is actually, now that you mention it, it is very kind of hand in hand like i guess we did have the order of the solar templar like that that happened in montreal but that also happened like spots around the world everybody killing themselves at the same time so yeah i guess that's not really the same but (laughs) (laughs) i'm 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 really curious about the cult angle because i love it when a musician takes that and just embraces the hell out of it and like plays with it plays on the ironies of that and i think you do it brilliantly did you did you really consciously want your live shows to look the way that they do and and do you have a vision going forward of like what you want to happen in the future oh yeah 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 yeah. um 
I, I've always just been super fascinated with like this kind of mindset that because it's like you know cults obviously are kind of like not super common. You know they're kind of like few and far between, and they're like pretty. They're like weird. They're not your everyday occurrence, and so they're just like so fascinating because it's like it's like really rare when you see something that's kind of unique, but there's a large gathering of people who are all into it at the same time. And it's just like, I just like always wonder, I'm like, you know, what has to go into this cult being formulated and like what has to be happening for one person to get all these other people to agree with what they're saying and blindly follow them to doing things like drinking the Kool-Aid or like murdering other people. It's just like, it's a, it's like crazy behavior, but it's, it's like really fascinating. Cause you know, when I was a kid, um, my grandfather's kind of like has a lot of morbid interests too. And he had a lot of books on cults and serial killers. And I would read them while I was, you know, staying over at his house and I would just read them and I would just be like, I would just be like, what, like what on earth? And so, you know, like, I've, and I've always kind of drawn a comparison to that and, you know, kind of artists, because artists, you don't know the artist, really. You know, you only know them through the art that they put out. You only know them through these bits and pieces of themselves that they offer up to the public. And people camp outside in the rain and bring personal belongings and, like, would do anything for these artists. And, you know, it's on a scale from artists like Michael Jackson and Madonna to even small indie artists, you know, people, like, devote themselves. And I've always found it kind of similar in a way, And you know, while artists are asking their fans to drink the Kool-Aid or do this kind of shit, you know, it's it's very... The behavior is kind of the same. Um, and so I just, I was like, why not lean into that? And, you know, the art is already kind of like culty themed and very interested in like, you know, the kind of, I guess, darker aspects of human nature and psychology. So I was like, you know, it's it was kind of interesting to just, I always like wonder where the line is of like, you know, when I played my show back in October, I was like, everybody wear white and we'll have a weird big prayer circle outside. And then we just kind of did it. And I was looking at the video footage back and I was like, this looks weird. I was like, this is really kooky and strange. And if I saw this like as an outsider, I would be like, what the hell is going on? Um, So yeah, I don't know. It's, I I definitely do want to lean into it a bit further going forward in the project, I kind of want the project to start off at kind of like a weird, kind of like subtly weird level and then kind of like descend into, you know, craziness over time, over the course of the next couple records. So um, yeah, I'm excited to see kind of how far I can push it. See, that's what I was most curious about. If you have this grand overall plan and it sounds like you do, I'm, I'm really excited to hear that because you even have like, I guess the other angle that you got going is the religious angle but even that is still tied into like the cult angle so it's it's yeah. cool that you have this grand plan for this that's that's good to hear oh yeah i've been trying to like lay it out slowly there's nothing to me is more entertaining than a very very slow burn and i love when artists like plan out something that's like you know this long and then like starts with little bitty bits at the beginning and you know, because obviously the whole the whole 
album, the story, everything is like from a, like a film perspective. And I love, you know, I love when a story starts at the end and works its way back there. I, I'm so my favorite like storytelling method is when you start with like a big catastrophic event and then you work your way back to figure out what the events were that led up to that event. That's like my favorite thing in media, um, especially film and literature. And so I kind of wanted to start at the end with this like crazy explosive finale and then work your way back up to the sinister events that kind of wound up trickling down to cause it. Um, and so I'm really excited to kind of explore that through the multimedia of film and music and literature and just social presence, honestly. See, you're already a hell of an interview because you're doing my job for me. You're already bringing up film. So thank you. <laughs> I really want to delve into this because frankly, you as an artist, you wanted to be a filmmaker. So I want to know when did you decide that? Why did you decide to go away from that? Because I don't know that my audience really knows a lot about you. So really bring them into the film aspect of everything. If you see the film aspect ever coming back to this project and just that, that whole thing as a whole, I guess. So I've always wanted, I, I've always wanted to just be kind of a storyteller, like point blank. Like I've always just wanted to tell stories and entertain and like bring worlds to life. When I was a kid, I was a writer. I would write short stories on like, you know, my little college ruled paper um, and I always bounced around between, you know, how I wanted to do that. Did I want to write books? Did I want to make movies? Did I want to make music? Did I want to, you know, make clothes? Tell, I, I just, there's so many ways. And I always thought as a kid, you have to pick one. And then I realized as I got older that you could do it all. So filmmaking has always been like the medium that I've been kind of most passionate alongside music. But when I was about 18, 19, I wanted to go to the film school I um, moved to Tallahassee Florida I was going to go to Florida State University go to their film school program it was a really hard program to get into they were only accepting like 25 applicants out of like 50,000 students and I just was kind of like I would work really hard to get in it'd be really expensive and then they would probably put like a damper on like the stuff I wanted to make because I wanted to make like really visceral graphic like uncensored art and I didn't want to I didn't want to be told by a teacher that I had to change what I was doing. So I was like, I'm just not going to bother. Film is very expensive to make, as everybody knows. And so I was like, well, if I can't have a huge budget to go make a big film right now, and I was a little selfish and I didn't want to start off making little short films and working my way up. I was like, I want to make something crazy right now. So I was like, I'm going to wait until I have a bigger budget and I can have a team and the resources. So I just was like, I'm going to take my films and my ideas and I'm going to basically make the soundtracks to those film ideas in the meantime to kind of help me like parse out the story and kind of lay it out as like a sonic framework for the films um you know I was watching big American epics like Thelma and Louise it's my favorite film um has been for a long time probably will be for a long time and you know Hans Zimmer did the soundtrack and it's such a sweeping American like soundtrack and it's it's just so like poignant for the film and I just thought each song characterized each scene so well and like tightly and so when I started writing this record each 
song that I was writing was kind of subconsciously influencing the framework of this film idea that I had. And so basically I started piecing it together as, you know, the intro to the album, the very first song is called Family Tree Intro. And it's like the opening credit scene in my mind. And then the second track is like the big bright, like, you know, teen coming of age film, like montage scene. And then you have, it kind of dips down. And then like later in the album in the middle, you have Family Tree, the full version as like the reprise. And so it's like, it was less of an album and more of like a, more of like an emotional kind of like wave that was writing with the film. You have the high points and the low points and you have the climax, you know, the first six songs on the record are act one. And then the last seven songs are act two. And it's very much like meant to be listened to front to back in order because it follows the emotional progress of this character's journey through this story. And so I've, I haven't really been able to play with film the way I want to. It's, you know, I've been using a VHS camera, using a Super 8, you know, kind of trying to make what I can with the resources I have. But like, you know, one day I'm like, I'm going to grab myself a nice 35 or 72 millimeter camera and go out and film a two hour film with, you know, great ADR and like make a full length feature film because that's what I see when I listen to my album. You know, I don't just hear an album. I'm like watching a movie in my head. And, you know, film is really the world that I want to break into because I can make music in my bedroom all day long, but I really want to break into making full length films because there's something that happens when I watch a movie or when I go to a theater and, you know, experience the film that it's just like, it is unlike any other experience in life. And I want to create that for other people and for myself to have the satisfaction of watching my own films. But um, yeah, film is, film is kind of the like ultimate ceiling for this project, I think. What were like some of the visceral stuff that you were watching growing up? Was there like anything that really inspired you and you're like, if I can even... If, if I get the chance one day and I'm making this film, if I even come kind of like close to this, I've, I've like accomplished this visceral element to the mass public that a lot of people really don't get an opportunity to do. You know, it's funny because it's like, it's hard for me to pinpoint film references that I really love because I think what really inspired me about film was I was loving all these films and like the way that the stories were being told just from the basic like standpoint of like big soundtrack it's on a big screen it's like you know beautiful cinematography pretty much any film I would watch I'd be like oh this is cool but I wasn't seeing the stories that I wanted to see told through that medium so it's like a lot of the film inspiration that I would get was from like my childhood and the people that I grew up around and like my life stories and like, you know, the South, basically, I was always seeing the South represented in like a weird kind of like, like caricaturized way that wasn't like, it wasn't really true to like what I experienced growing up. And I always wanted to see like a gritty, visceral Southern drama film. And it's kind of hard to find those. I would say like, if, if we're talking films that maybe would come close to kind of what I'd like to see, maybe um, 
August Osage County, what's eating Gilbert grape, um, you know, gummo, just because of the setting of it and how raw it feels and how kind of kooky it is. Oh, there is nothing more raw than Harmony Kareem. <laughs> oh, for real. Like, I remember the first time I watched Gummo, and, you know, it's such like a, it's such like a non-sequitur movie, but, you know, it's, it's, it just kind of captures a vibe that, like, if you haven't seen Gummo, when you watch it, you've never seen something like it before. Um, and, you know, other movies like Playing Dirty with Dominique Swain and Jess and Moss um, and this movie Jug Face, you know, all these movies that are kind of like further in left field, but it's just like these weird little portraits of people growing up running around barefoot in the woods and being kind of lawless. And I would love to see stories like that be brought more to the center and told in more the style of like, more of like a blockbuster almost, because I do love, you know, weird little indie movies that are kind of told a little less narratively, a little less linear, but I would love to see a big, like Thelma and Louise is the closest, I would say, because it's the closest to like, the setting and the characters and the outfits and the dialogue that I would love to see out of a big Ridley Scott directed wide release film. Um, so yeah, I would love to combine that epicness of a huge summer hit, but with the weird intimacy and drama and character developments of like a weird, small kooky indie film about some fucked up characters than like Kentucky or something or, you know, Alabama or Florida. Um, so yeah, I kind of would love to marry the, the kind of like perverted whimsy of like these weird indie flicks with this grandeur of, um, you know, wide release, huge blockbuster film. David Lynch means Michael Bay. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I want to see Laura Palmer walking away from an explosion. <laughs> well, I feel like Lynch would love that. He would he would find like this perverse joy in, in just seeing that that weirdness. So, right, it's ridiculously campy. <laughs> well, to the album, this is this is a fucking amazing album because you came around my radar, I guess with inbred and I was completely blown away because I was told by a buddy, there's this trans kid doing this crazy shit. You're going to fucking love it. It's so up your alley. It's not even funny. I remember putting on that first track. I'm like, it's very few times that I realize that there's an artist working right now. That's going to change the game. I 110% feel you're in that category. It's it's fucking mind blowing because you're kind of taking, I guess, like what what Lana Del Rey was doing, but then what Chelsea Wolf was doing and said, I kind of like that, but fuck all of that, and I'm gonna do it way crazier. I really appreciate that. So, I guess, how hard of an album was this for you to make? Because it did take three years to make. No. I took four. It was it? so long. Like, yeah, it was such a long process because it was just like a lot of back and forth. And, you know, up until the end, when I, when I finally brought in all the other artists, you know, like to do the drums, like in Toronto and the guitar, you know, 
the last six months of working with other people, adding the final pieces that I couldn't add, it was like, it was just me in my room trying to tell a film through music with like very little resources. And so it was just, it was really exhausting, honestly, because it's like, I knew the story, but it was like, you know, I'm not the best guitar player. I don't play the drums. So I was just trying to piece together this epic album with such limited resources. And it was just, it was really strenuous, but I knew what I wanted. And then, you know, it just, it went through so many phases and, you know, I'm also growing up as a person, like, you know, going from 19 to 24 while I'm working on it. And so it's just like, it's just all these things that are happening and you're piecing together new things and you're building this world and you're going from this like two dimensional, like sliver of a caricature of a person to this fleshed out four dimensional human being that lives and breathes almost alongside you that turned, that, that is Ethel Kane. And you're trying to develop this into a story. And, you know, I, I've written, I've probably spent as much time writing word documents, like getting the skeletal, you know, structure of the story as I have working on the music and planning out a book and planning out the movie and like piecing together the visuals and locating it in my brain and like figuring out how I want to do this. You know, it's, it hasn't been just music the whole time. It's been like building a universe and the music has just gotten the most attention so far, but it's like, it's been so interesting. Like, going from having like this kind of snapshot of the South and this snapshot of this person and then kind of pouring all of my lived experiences into it and building it up. And it's it's been just mind boggling. I have smoked a lot of weed. I've cried a lot of tears. I've put a lot of, you know, just like, I, it, it was just weird because I started doing it because, you know, it's, it's by no means like incredibly revolutionary the, the the way that stories are told and you know the stories that are being told and the way that these stories get told but it was like it was just something so personal to me that nobody else could really help me with because it was it was my story you know it was my thing and I couldn't just like go have somebody else do it for me it was like I had to do it myself and it was it was a new medium to me I was I was teaching myself music I was teaching myself writing and I was teaching myself all these things and you know it's like it's just kind of whenever you you find a little trail that you want to blaze it's like you know it's by no means the organ trail but it is a unique trail to you and trying to find a way to make that happen exactly how you see it in your head it's it's like really exhausting but it's so rewarding when you find a way to pull it off and it's just it's it's been so interesting like living with this story and trying to capture the way that it comes to me in my head and um I don't know it's it's been like really fun and weird and it's been kind of unlike anything else I think I've ever embarked on in my whole life well did you almost find it easier or almost cathartic that you were dealing with this artistically but then so many changes in your life like you're growing up religious you're you're in the south you're you're constantly changing like your sexuality's changing. Everything around you is changing. Did you almost find that you dealing with it in an artistic way was helping you, I guess, just deal with it in life much easier than, I guess, maybe other kids in, in like the same situation in the South were having at the time? Oh, very much so. This was absolutely, on top of being an artistic project, it was entirely... 
it gave me a level of like self-reflection that I don't think I would have had without it. Cause it was like, <clears throat> I feel like everything is easier when you have like a bird's eye view or like a, a, like a third person perspective. And for me, you know, as I was, you know, developing from a child to an adult going, you know, like discovering my, you know, my likes and my dislikes, my sexuality, my, you know, my religious upbringing, you know, all these things that are like budding and confusing. It was like, I kind of just like pinned it on her, on this character and let her go through it. And it was kind of like easier to analyze when it was on somebody else. And then I'd be like, hmm, I was like, this would work like this. And this is because of this. And I should do this instead of this, or well, she should do this instead of this. And then it was kind of like, it was kind of like, watching it reflected and then I was learning from it because I, I always describe her as my crash test dummy because I just kind of like let her like I just let this character go through all the weird crazy shit you know and then I just kind of follow in the footsteps and I'm like okay I should do this I shouldn't do this and so it's it's very much been self-therapeutic in the in a way just kind of exploring these themes in a creative sense, instead of kind of trying to play God with my own situation and make a mess of my own life, I just make a mess of hers and learn from it and kind of avoid catching the strays that would come from, you know, making a mess of my own situation because it's all her problem to deal with. <laughs> I got to talk religion. Because I want to know your relationship with religion right now. It's it, it's one of my favorite things. And I feel like artists are always, I guess, like a little hesitant to talk about it. But you have such <laughs> this, this, I guess, ethos in, in, your, in your artistry to begin with. What is your relationship to religion now? It's so funny. I've, and I, it's honestly been in like the past month that I've really analyzed this through doing interviews and having to talk about it. It's actually made me realize that I think I, I think I had a different idea of my own artwork previously because I've always, I've always thought of myself as being a highly religious artist and everything is about God and Jesus and religion and, you know, all of my imagery is like the crosses and, you know, God is name dropped in every song. But I realized in the past month that I think my art is less about God and more about my relationship with other people in the name of God. Because I think growing up, Growing up, everything was about God. Everything is about Jesus. Everything was about heaven and hell and sin and what's right and righteousness. And I never really felt God's presence. I never really felt God in the room with us. It was a bunch of people trying to make sense of their lives and their stories and their feelings through this like lens of Christianity, because growing up, growing up, it was never like, oh, God and I aren't doing well right now. It's not like, oh, God yelled at me yesterday. It was, oh, your father and I are on the rocks or, oh, your cousin got expelled from school or we just like something. And it, it was never about God. It was about everybody else. 
and how disappointed God must be or about how angry God must be or about, oh, she's not a Christian. She's going to hell. It's never about God. It's always about the people. And I realized that a lot of my experience growing up was never about God. It was about interpersonal relationships and human nature through this set of rules and strictures that was set by this man who I'd never really felt or experienced before. And that I feel like has been my main problem with religion is that we're a bunch of real flesh and blood people with real tangible feelings and emotions. And, you know, we're all real people and we bleed and we cry and we laugh and all this, and we're hurting each other in the name of someone that none of us have any proof exists. And I'm not going to claim to be any kind of like religious, um, what, oh, what's the word? Like, um, oh, the word is escaping me. I'm not going to claim to be educated on it. I'm not going to tell you that God exists or he doesn't. I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm 24. I don't know. Um, if God is real, that's great. If God's not real, that's fine. If God is real to some people and not to other people, that's fine. Like, you know, it's, I think that religion, I think religion at its core is not a problem when it's personal to the individual. I think the problem comes in when you try to organize it and you try to experience God and you try to make other people experience God the way that you do. I think that's where the problem comes in. And I think that's where the drama comes in and you know, the issues it's, it's interpersonal. And so for me, you know, for me, spirituality has kind of come easier now as an adult, now that it's not being shoved down my throat and I'm able to experience like those kind of magical moments in the stillness when I'm alone but it just was never working out for me as a kid because I think humans are a lot less likely to feel something naturally when it's being imposed upon them in an unnatural way. Um, and so that's kind of my opinion with religion right now. It's like, I don't think it's bad. I think your relationship with God, whatever God is to you, is just that, your relationship. I don't think that trying to force other people to experience God the way that you do is correct or ethical in any means because it's just not going to happen. No one's ever going to live the same life and, you know, rejoice the same way and bleed the same way that you do. And I just think it's kind of silly to try to, you know, put that on somebody else. Um, and that's kind of where I sit with it right now. I guess the other big topic, especially... When we're, when we're talking in the United States and where you grew up was the political aspect of things. Yeah. Do you feel like we're, we're going in a right direction? Are, are you hopeful when you walk around or do you deceive um, the chaos that, <laughs> that, that, that is kind of just there right now? Yeah, I think that's one of the main reasons that I want to make art and build the platform right now is because if I was confident in the way things were going, I wouldn't feel the need to speak up. But it's just like, I feel like I have, I feel like the perspective that I have gained over the years, being from an incredibly diverse part of the country that is also very well known for being extremely right-leaning bigoted 
prejudice. Obviously, the how the South has a very bloody and dark history. Um, being from here and seeing that, but also seeing the diversity in culture and the richness of minorities and marginalized communities in the South and seeing poverty and all of this and then going to Los Angeles and seeing the Hollywood sign and all the darkness behind that and seeing the glitz and the glamour and the opulence. It's like walking that line is very confusing and weird. And it the, the gap I feel, I was born in 1998, so I can't speak to literally anything that happened before that. I wasn't there, you know, I, I, I don't know the intricacies of how the world worked back then. All I know is that right now things are kind of freaky and they make me nervous for the future because I feel like people are getting angrier and angrier and the divide is getting bigger and people are losing their humanity and their ability to sympathize with their neighbor. It makes me nervous when I look at politics and I see people up in arms over one party and then up in arms over another party as if either party cares about the people you know, I have no faith in the government, either party. I have no faith in rich billionaires and lawmakers to take care of blue collar workers in America. I, I've never, you know, my whole family's blue collar and I've watched them struggle their whole lives, you know, to make ends meet. And we always had food on the table, but, you know, we, my dad still breaks his back every day working um, to provide for his family. And while I think that's a very honest and hardworking mindset and I have so much respect and love for my dad and everyone like that, I don't think that people should be forced to work that hard to make a living and all of that money winds up going in the pocket of somebody else, you know, and it's just, it's kind of disheartening and it makes me nervous because as they say, the rich keep getting richer and the poor keep getting poorer. And I, I'm not a lawmaker and I'm not, really an educated activist and all of this. So I don't know how to bring about change. I just, I don't think it, I think even a dummy could see that change is necessary right now. Um, and so I don't know where that would begin, but I feel like the first step is we have to start talking to each other again, because I feel like there's a huge communication problem where a lot of people are a lot more likely to stand up and defend a billionaire than they are to stand up and defend their next door neighbor who is infinitely more knowledgeable on your situation than a billionaire on a hill is gonna be. Um, and I just feel like that's something that's important to be said. And I'm not the first person to say it and I'm not the last person to say it, but like, damn, I'm gonna say it too. I'm like super excited and I'm gonna try my hardest to get to this Hollywood Forever show that's happening on the 18th. Um, are you, yeah. are you excited to have an album released there? Like this seems like the most perfect place in all of anywhere to have this album I, released. You know, oh my gosh. I'm so excited. Like, it's funny. My friend that I usually stay with when I go to LA lives across the street. So I always like pass it and see it. And it's just like, it's like so pretty and cool. I used to walk around Hollywood forever a lot when I would first start going to LA and I didn't know as many people if I like had time to kill, I would just go to Hollywood forever and walk around. Um, so it's like, it's so perfect. It's, I've seen pictures of the venue. It looks so pretty. I'm, I'm so excited to play this show. I think it's going to be so much fun. Do you have anything special planned for it? Um, 
I can't say entirely. Honestly, like, I always, like, have these, like, I, I want to do fun stuff for shows, but it's, like, planning shows is so difficult, and it's, like, right now my team is so small, and it's, like, you know, doing everything myself between, like, having to do press photos and, like, get my backing tracks ready and, like, just all this, like, rollout stuff, like, doing it all on my own is... It's proving to be a bit more exhausting than I thought it was going to be. So it's like I can't devote as much time to specific little things as I'd like. But I'm hoping to to find some cool little things. Maybe I can like throw together and make it a cool show. But um, if not, I'm just going to show up in my overalls and I'm going to rock the hell out and put on a sh- the best show I can. Um, even if I can't find any good gimmicks or theatrics, I'm just going to just go for it anyways. But um, but yeah, I think regardless, it'll be cool. Um, I think everybody who's coming is, you know, I, I keep getting asked about the dress code. I'm like, either wear all white or wear your best, like, 90s grungy Nirvana ass outfits, wear your favorite band tees with your ripped up jeans. I was like, just look cool as shit and come party. Um, so I think we're going to see a very interesting dichotomy of outfits going on. But, um, but yeah, I think it's going to be really fun. And I'm, I'm so excited to see everybody. I haven't played a show since October, so I'm ready to get back on stage. Do you find, I guess, playing shows a little bit harder because you're doing everything in your room? So when having to rely on, on like anything from a click track to other musicians, do you find that part of this hard trying to teach other people or are trying to play along to something particularly difficult live? Oh my gosh, yeah. Playing live has always been such a nightmare for me because it's like, I know how to plug my guitar into my computer and I know how to produce all day long, but like I've never really played a live show and I kind of rely on the expertise of like these older, more seasoned musicians who are playing with me to like, I, I didn't know what a front of house was. I didn't, I don't know, like, I, I don't know how to run of anything. Um, and so it's kind of been really scary, but luckily I've been working with really cool experienced musicians and artists who are able to kind of like help guide me on stage to the point where all I really have to do is get in front of that microphone and make sure that I hit all the right notes. Um, I would not describe myself as a performer by any means. And I don't really, I'm kind of nervous about establishing my establishing myself as a performer going forward. Cause I don't want people to get the idea that I'm going to be this huge touring artist because I never really see that for myself. You know, I'm not like the strongest singer or I don't know any cool dance moves and I don't really have a lot of energy to like jump around and do stuff. I'm very much like a stand there and sing kind of artist. You know, I, I feel like my, see, but I feel like that's what makes my, your live shows brilliant. Well, that's like what I, that's what I hope that people like it. Cause it's like, I feel like I am much better behind the microphone, behind the computer in a room by myself, like writing and scribbling away or producing or, you know, recording or whatever. But like, like being in front of a lot of people makes me nervous. Um, I still get such bad pre-show jitters, but it, it is fun. I do love the community of it. I feel like it would be a lost, a lot less exciting if I was playing stadiums or arenas or these huge impersonal shows with thousands of people. But like when it's a small room with people that you can actually go out into the crowd and talk to them after the show's over, that's really fun. And I like that. It's small, it's contained, it's intimate. I could do that probably for the rest of my career and be happy with it. Um, but yeah, sometimes you just got to stand there and sway and give a good tambourine clap every now and then and, um, you know, do your thing. But yeah, it's, it's enjoyable. Um, I, I do like it. It's fun. The next album. Have you already started writing it? Are you thinking of oh maybe, God, of 
Yeah, that well, that, that's fantastic. <laughs> I hope that we're not going to have to wait another four years for this, though. I think it'll be easier this time because now, you know, I started writing my first album, um, this album. I started writing it six months after I started producing. So it was years of production knowledge and getting, it was like a very steep learning curve. I didn't have any mentors. I didn't have any guidance. You know, I, I was alone figuring this shit out by myself. Now I have other musicians that I'm able to work with and, you know, I'll still continue producing everything myself and writing it all myself, but I have other people to like ping ideas off of and be like, how do you work this like, how do you work a compressor? How do you plug this in? Like, you know, like silly little things like that. I, I have people who can kind of help navigate me in the right direction that I never had. And I have other guitarists and uh, drummers and people like that who can now kind of help aid. And I've gotten a lot, I feel a lot stronger in my songwriting and ability to like put out a song, you know, used to be, it was like struggling to like get even half of the output that I have now but I I feel like I found my footing a lot easier and now that I have the bones of this story I'm just at a way better starting point and a way better advantage to this record and I know exactly what I want I know exactly what sound I want I know how to achieve it I know what the story is I know where I'm going and so I think this record's going to come together a lot quicker and I'm really excited to finish it because already the little the little nuggets that I've got going on for it so far, I'm loving it so much more. You mentioned short films earlier and you, and you released an EP technically first. Were you a little hesitant about doing that? Releasing, I guess your first music, not as a whole album. I made three EPs before this record came out because I wanted this record to be so big and perfect or at least as perfect as I could get it, you know, with my resources. And I kept putting out little EPs because I was like, I just didn't want, like, I didn't want to not be building a musical repertoire, you know, in these four years while I'm making music. I was like, I need to be building my, building my, my, my image and my story in the meantime. So they were kind of like little morsels and little, little like bite-sized snapshots of what I had coming and like what I was thinking kind of like little like proof of concepts you know I, I you know how like a lot of indie films have little proof of concept shorts that are kind of like this is what I can do like just give me a minute and I'll get you the final product that's kind of what these EPs were for me um like kind of a way to kind of have fun and be a little less contained and a little less regulated while I'm working on this very specific regulated concrete project so they were kind of just like little fun projects that um, I did really enjoy putting them out. Honestly, I had a, I had a great time working on all three of them. Um, they were really fun. And, you know, wh while they're not necessarily explicitly canon to this like big overarching story that's kind of about to be unraveled, they were definitely little bits and pieces of Ethel Kane, I think. Um, so it was, they, they were fun. They were cool. I look back on them fondly. You know, they, I think they kind of mark my progress as an artist and my progress as a producer and a writer. Um, so even though some of them are a little ramshackle, I think they're, um, I think they're, they're milestones. So I'm proud of them. I guess other instruments, guest musicians, things like that. Are there things that you're thinking about trying out? 
going forward? Is is there like an instrument that you're like, man, if I can think of like how to put that theremin in to like this weird creepy Literally song? I'm gonna say theremin. <laughs> it's so funny. I've been thinking about. I've been meaning to buy a theremin. It's in my Sweetwater cart right now. That is so funny that you say that. My I wife and I say all the time that we're gonna build one. I've yet to build it, but one day, damn it, I'm gonna build my theremin. <laughs> One day, I, one day I'm gonna learn how to play one. I'm telling you, like, like this. I have a lot of love for a lot of different decades of music. You know, like this record takes place in '91. The next record takes place in like '70, 70, '71. The final record takes place in like the early '40s. So it's like I'm really excited to experiment for this next record with like more slide guitar, a like Dolly Parton, Tammy Wynette kind of country sound, but then like some shoegaze elements to make it, you know, more of my sound. And then lots of like organs to get a nice Wurlitzer in there, you know, get a nice little, um, Dro- I want it to be very kind of, Dr- what? Drony arena metal. It's, it sounds fantastic. Very, very, yeah. Very like slow, but also some kind of almost like more upbeat, like wise blood, Karen Carpenter kind of like love songs, but you know, all of my records are always a descent into madness. So it'll start off being brighter and faster and then like slow down into kind of this like sludgy, like, you know, kind of anxious, slow core, shoegazy, but still very bright and beautiful sound. Cause that's, you know, I will always have a love for slow down music, slow core, too much reverb will always be kind of, I think the center point of no matter how many genres I explore, that'll always be a very, I think, core element of the music. So I want to do that 70s ABBA meets the Carpenters, meets Dolly Parton, meets kind of like love songs and whatnot, but with that heavily like doubled vocals, the chorus, very in-your-head cerebral sound with too much reverb, forever and ever, amen. Um, and then, of course, for like the the final record as it stands right now, you know, it's way down the road. So it, I'm, it's probably subject to change. But right now, I wanna I wanna do the theremin and do some like weird folksy Appalachian folk, you know, with the fiddle and like really dark and more experimental. With like, I wanna have like the bagpipes on it. I want it to be very multi instrumentalist, very, very raw, very creepy very just very spook, almost like a horror movie soundtrack like because that's probably the darkest story in the trilogy it's where it all starts and so i want it to be like freaky culty i don't want to use the word witchy but like witchy like spooky vibes um so i'm just excited to play with a bunch of different sounds and soundscapes and kind of like bolster my knowledge as a producer and just kind of like do whatever the fuck comes to mind you know have have you thought about what your answer would be if somebody approached you to do i guess this big horror film score kind of like what chelsea wolf has been doing lately and like frankly yeah there's tons of these musicians that are just doing these crazy big horror movie kind of soundtracks now is this something that you're also interested in oh my god i've been telling my team that um I I don't even know if I'm supposed to say this, but we're at the New York show. Um, I know we've been in conversation with like having kind of just like a fun little 
just like a little meeting with A24 um, because I've been like begging my team to get me in kind of that A24 space of like doing soundtracks for a weird indie movie. I would love for a horror movie to come along that's just like balls to the wall, weirdo, crazy, like some Cronenberg shit or just something super out there. And I would love to sit down and like do that. So I, it sounds like that might be nearby on the horizon. And I'm very much looking, like honestly, I'm more excited to do soundtracks for films probably more than I am to make like actual albums and put them out because that, you know, obviously the, the film aspect will always be at the core of my musical interest. And I'm excited to make soundtracks for other people's films. And I'm excited to make the soundtracks for my films when I make them. So yeah, plenty, plenty of soundtracking on the horizon. I know that it's no time soon, but you're, you were talking about the three album structure to this overarching story, are we expecting Ethel Kane to be dead at the end of this? Or is like once you're done that third album, are you going to kind of leave the Ethel Kane mythos behind? I think I will. I it's definitely going to be at least the next ten years of my life between writing the books and doing the films and finishing all three albums. It's going to be probably the next decade of my life. Like it'll probably be into my thirties. Um. So. You know, Ethel Kane is dead at the end of Preacher's Daughter. You know, this is the end of the story. It is the end of the the bloodline. It's, but there, it's she. But there can always be rebirth. I am. I think I'm gonna. So basically, the whole thing, like, I, I, without giving too much away of the overarching story, it's very Ouroboros. It's very full circle, and so it ends with this daughter who dies, and you know, she's like makes her peace with it, moves on, case closed, the book is over. But as it works its way backwards, it's going, it's a very dark story. It's, and that's why it ends on such a bittersweet note of like, yeah, she gets murdered, but then she makes her peace with it and she moves on and everything, it just kind of is what it is. But as the story moves forward, it's just going to it's going to move back up through her mother and then up through her grandmother. And it's just going to kind of work its way back up to where things started. And then when you see where everything started, you'll understand why everything ended the way that it ended. And it's very kind of like. It's very like. It's just very full circle in a very bittersweet way. It's not a happy ending, but it's not entirely bad. It's, it's, I just kind of wanted it to be one of those things where it kind of mimics real life, where there is no happy or terrible ending. It just like, it is what it is. It ends the way it ends and then life moves on and everybody has to go about their day, you know, like some like crazy shit will happen and the sun's still going to rise and there's still going to be another day. And that's kind of what I wanted this story to be like. It's kind of, you know, I always say it's like a dark timeline. It's like, if I were to go down a path where life got worse, it'd be this, but it's going, the, the story's going down a dark path so I can go down a better path. Um, and so, yeah, I think I'm just going to like finish the three albums and it's going to be all wrapped up. The snake will have eaten its tail. It will be complete. And then I think I'm going to move on to something else. You know, I think 10 plus years with Ethel Kane, I think will be fully wrapped up, but you know, every story has to end at some point. And then I'll probably just start making music under my own name or just make a whole nother character and go on. Like, I don't know. I, I can't really, 
I can't really see that far down the line. Um, right now, I'm so consumed by Ethel Kane's story and this universe, but it, she will be put to rest one day. I want her to exist as a contained story. I don't want to drag her out with too many sequels and ruin the franchise. But um, but uh, yeah, there, there will be an end at some point, but it'll all be, I think all loose, loose ends will be tied up and I think people will be satisfied with the way that I have it planned out as of right now. So we'll see. You're just going to do a Tarantino 10 and done. It's, it's the perfect way. Yeah. Do it and be yeah, out. Exactly. Like I'm done. <laughs> Wash my hands of it. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on today. It really means a lot. I think you are one of the most interesting artists working today. Like it's, I, I genuinely mean that. Every single time <laughs> that there's new music from you, I know that I'm going to be jumping at the gun to listen to this because I myself am a really big fan and I hope everybody goes and checks this new album out, checks out your, your other EPs because you are really something fantastic right now. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's been such a lovely opportunity. I've had a great time. Thank you for listening. That was Ethel Kane. Make sure to check out Preacher's Daughter out May 12th, 2022. If you can see Ethel anywhere live, do yourself a favor. And this concludes our broadcast day.